Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ma mihi mote Kia ora and welcome to episode 43. Now, you might have heard me mention in a previous episode how I've been having lots of conversations this year with people who are trying to shift how their organization works with the people they serve. And I heard a lot about the emotional roller coaster of this kind of work where you just you come home some days and you're just so disillusioned. And these are people who are in their dream jobs, but just feeling constrained by the conditions around them. If that sounds like you or anybody that you know, then this episode is going to be hugely helpful. The conversation is with Liz Skelton, who was recommended to me by another Liz, Liz Weaver, back in episode 36, where we talked about how to build a movement around a particular shared issue. Liz has a wealth of experience helping different groups of people across all sorts of backgrounds to make social and cultural change together. Most recently, she's the co-founder, director, and now the chair of Collaboration for Impact in Australia, which tries to help communities work on the root causes of problems rather than the symptoms. What I think you'll love about this conversation is the way that Liz reframes the challenge of working within an organization that you feel is constraining you from working in a certain way. Liz encourages us to shift our inner dialogue from my organization is constraining me here, my organization is the barrier, to actually shifting beliefs and perspectives is the work. So maybe that actually is your real job rather than what might be in your job description. How can you work on the conditions so that your organization is left in a stronger position after you leave? It's got more capability and capacity to continue working on the underlying causes. So there's a whole lot more that we unpack in today's conversation. How do you convince people to work in this way? How do you find allies and grow your network to build support for this sort of way of working? What inner work do you need to do to look at how you're showing up? Because we influence a system simply by being in it. What's your default reaction to conflict? And what are some of the capabilities for influencing systems? And how do you build those in your everyday work life when you're busy? Liz has just some really practical suggestions that I really enjoyed. That's probably enough of an introduction into what you're going to learn through this cordial. Uh, there's two final things I do want to say though, which is if you're left after this one going, that was amazing and I need to build my skills in this area, we are currently developing a program for just that which is how can you reframe the way that your organization works with the people that you serve? And when we talk about reframing there, it's both reframing your own role 
as well as reframing how your organization works. If you're interested in that, at this stage, just send me an email or a message on LinkedIn. Our listener shout out today, kia ora to you, Johnny O'Donnell, and to Libby Brown as well. I caught up with Johnny this week. He's recently founded a consulting practice, also here in Whakatū, Nelson, where I'm based. He shared with me that he loves the podcast, and he puts it on on road trips with Libby. Borderline whether Libby is such a fan. I got the impression that maybe this would not be the type of podcast that Libby would uh, choose to listen to on her own. So, kia ora to you both. Okay, well that is enough from me. Please welcome to the show, Liz Skelton. I am really pleased to welcome onto the show, Liz Skelton. Welcome, Liz. Hi, pleased to be here, Paul. Good to good to be speaking with you today. Yeah, fantastic. And I mean, maybe as a nice starting point, Liz, you know, when you first came into the Zoom room with me here, you had something on your name, which uh, we don't see so much here in New Zealand, but you're acknowledging the country on which you're standing. Would you um, like to introduce yourself in, in any way you like and perhaps reflect on where you are today? So I'm on beautiful Bundjalung country, which is the land of the Arakwal people up in northern New South Wales, quite close to the Queensland border in Australia. And I'm here representing Collaboration for Impact, which I'm a co-founder of and a director of. You've had a really interesting career, at least certainly looks that way from the outside looking in. You know, you've led NGOs in Scotland and Australia, been part of Social Leadership Australia. You know, you've founded your own practice, the Adaptive Practice, and and then co-founded Collaboration for Impact back in 2014, wasn't it? So I'm interested a step further back than that. You know, what was it in your upbringing or your childhood that led you into a career of doing good through systems change? Oh, wow. That's that's a fairly big question. I yeah. <laughs> need to probably go back away. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, obviously doing this kind of work in systems change, we're often asking others to connect with that question about your purpose and what drives you. For a lot of people, it's been an event or it's been something they were exposed to. And I guess for me, it's never really been that. I grew up in a family that was, was very kind of socially aware socially active my parents were both teachers but I think probably that if to locate it in something was my mum was a she was the first woman in Scotland to be ordained as a minister in the church Mm. and I came from what was called at that time growing up in Scotland in the 70s that I was from a mixed marriage because my dad was Catholic went to a Catholic school so it wasn't the norm to have a mother who was a minister Mm. and it wasn't really part of our lives in a in a kind of lived way she went and did her job and my dad did his job but I think the way that my mum kind of expressed her faith was really around social justice so she was very active and involved in community working with community she was very down to earth she was mm. from Sheffield in Yorkshire, called a spade a spade, you know, would sit down and have a fag in a gin and tonic with whoever. And I think I just grew up around that, that, mm. you know, the house was always those different people coming in and out, people who didn't have uh, families or whatever. And it wasn't really how I saw religion being expressed. And I, I don't, I'm not a practicing, I don't have a practicing religion, but I think for me, the most natural way was around, you know, treating people how you want to be treated. And 
I went into, I did communications at uni and was really interested in social marketing about how do, how do you shift people's attitudes and worldviews, particularly around people who they see as the other. Yeah. And I guess I found myself on that path and pursued and got interested in work, which was often working with people who were seen as the other and being a bit of right. a bridge, if you like. So mm. it, it wasn't a conscious pull. It was just things that people said, oh, will you do this? Or there's an op- opportunity here. They could use your skills. And I think I just found myself in and gravitated to those kind of situations with people who were often marginalized mm-hmm. as well. Liz, it's nice to hear you say that you, you know, didn't have this penny drop moment or <laughs> or this path that you charted for yourself. Cause I know my career has been one of, of, yeah, just being like a moth to a flame and going, well, that feels good. Or, Oh, I'm interested in that. Or I know nothing about that. So I'm going to go and give that a try and, and learning through that. And I think that's, that's kind of almost the only path into this sort of work. Like nobody sits down at the career council and goes, I want to be a systems change enabler or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And, and interesting the, the, the role as well that family has in shaping your beliefs in ways that sometimes you're not even aware of. I think it's even, it's very hard to even describe what, what the job is that I do. Oh, yeah. And never mind, like, <laughs> what's the pathway to get there? But I think, you know, if I reflect back, one of the first jobs that I, I did in, in kind of the social sector was working with young people who were using drugs recreationally. It was the late 80s, mm. early 90s. And the reason that I was involved in that was because I had skills around communication. I was helping them with film and, you know, how to translate messages. Hmm into a way that could easily reach people with low literacy. And then, you know, opportunity came up to run it. And it was a peer education program. And suddenly I found myself in this space where I had to learn really fast, an awful lot. But I think that was really formative around the kind of questions that I was asking about how do you actually address a lot of this at the root causes Mm. rather than have Band-Aid solutions and and deal with that. I think it set me off on that path. I did a lot of work with organizations dealing with the symptoms of many social challenges and with a bit of going, yeah, well, this is all fine and well, but what do you do upstream and how Mm. can we tackle that? So just through doing more and more of this work, that's naturally taken me back upstream to go, Mm. okay, how do we get to the source? And and maybe come full circle to go, how do we change how people even see the challenge mm. so that never mind how we address it? Mm. I mean, I think we're starting to get into what I'm really interested to explore with you today, Liz, which is, you know, how do you build the capabilities and capacities for influencing systems change? And I've been having lots of conversations recently with people who are wanting to as you say, go upstream and address some of the underlying causes rather than the symptoms. And they're working in an organization where that's not the normal way of doing things. What advice might you have for people who are in that situation? Or what have you learned about how to take positive steps forward when you feel constrained by your own organization? I think those constraints are very real. And many of the communities and organizations that we work with collaboration for impact have been set up to work with the symptoms they've not been Mm. set up to actually address the biggest systemic issues and 
I, I guess what we find is in order to do that, it requires building different conditions because the system will always pull you back into exactly yeah. what it was set up for, you know, and yeah. I've used an expression from an old colleague, which is that systems are ruthless recruiters of status quo. So any attempt to go, let's look at this differently, do it differently, it's going to be snapped back mm. with the best will in the world and all the resources. So much of the work that I would say over the past maybe four or five years that we've been doing in Australia has been about how do you build readiness and create conditions to do that systemic work because it requires a shift in every level. It requires the shift mm. in how you're seeing the problem, who you're who you're working with, the relationships you have, where you're getting information from, where mm. resources come from, how you work. You know, it's on every level. And while that then feels overwhelming, a lot of what we do is start to work with people on, okay, where are there some early wins that you can get by aligning with other people and it may not be the usual suspects <laughs> but other people who are asking the same questions that you are who are seeking to go okay what would it look like if we instead of doing what we've always done we actually mm. try to do things which were more preventative or how do we take what might be working in our local mm. communities and look at okay so what would it mean to get system shifts on this mm. so you know, for, to give an example, we're seeing a lot of much better collaboration at community level. And many of the, the recent disasters we've had, whether that's yeah. been bushfires or COVID or floods, you really see that in spades. You see it in mm. buckets where people, you know, come out and community aligns really quickly and mobilizes mm. when there's a crisis. It's the question then is, okay, so what do we do then when we are in business as usual. How do yeah. we maintain that collaborative, cooperative way of working? We're, we're not protecting turf. Mm. We're not looking after our own funding, but we're like, mm. okay, there's a problem here. We all need to align yeah. to it. So in some ways, there's a bit of an art in going, how do you keep some of that heat that gets generated by that crisis while at the same time creating space to do more generative thinking, which allows people to, actually have the head space and the mm. bandwidth to think a wee bit differently to go okay how do we use what's happening on the ground here in communities to try and really shift things at a system level like what's the policy change that's needed mm. or how do we change the way that things get funded so that we can work more collaboratively but often you know I think the constraints are that people's heads are down they're overwhelmed yeah. they're focusing on what they've got to do but, you know, I see it very much as incremental and we nudges that mm. even going, OK, there's an opportunity in front of me today mm. where I could engage people in a different conversation. So rather mm. than coming together and being, you know, often we see people come together who are exchange information in, mm. say, a kind of community of interest rather than actually have the hard conversations about why aren't we why are we duplicating why aren't we aligning mm. services what is what are the barriers to that we have a choice every time we come together with people and we know there's another conversation that needs to be had <laughs> it's and we often go oh that's too hard yeah. so I often think it's going okay today I'm going to be a wee bit brave and I'm going to actually surface 
what's mm. what's below that everybody is talking about, but they're doing mm. it in the car park or they're doing it yeah. before the meeting. Yeah, or or rambling to their partner when they get home. Why yeah. is no one? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Mm. Yeah. So what I'm really hearing from you there, Liz, is a different way of thinking about, you know, if I'm in an organization, instead of looking around and going, oh, my organization is constraining me, I can look around and go, who around me are my allies here who might be asking similar questions? And what is the small thing that I can do today to open up a different type of conversation? And what are the conditions at different levels that I might be able to work on? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is normally just pushing ourselves out of the usual suspects straight away, mm. and and core to that. And I don't know if that if that is the same situation in New Zealand as in Australia, but certainly the challenge of making sure that the people most impacted by the challenge you're working on are at the heart of it, rather than an afterthought, is yeah. is really where we've had to focus a lot of attention here that, again, there's good, good intentions aren't enough. Jump in and ask a question. Like, do people in a, not understand the value of that? Or is it more they're just so used to a certain way of working and being that, well, we just we check with them at the end? Like, what, what is underlying that? Again, that, I think that's that's a big question, and there's probably <laughs> multiple answers. The, the rhetoric is that yes, of course, those most impacted need to be involved and at the heart of it. What that tends to look like in reality, though, is fairly traditional ways of consulting. We'll do the community engagement process at the beginning. We'll mm. then take their views in, but the 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 service providers and the experts will then mm. be the ones to frame to decide, to then scope, how do we actually make progress? And I think mm. what we're talking about in systems change is something quite different, which mm. is about building the conditions so that those most impacted are not only involved in actually framing what the problem is, because we know whoever's got the power to frame the challenge also then frames the solution and how a community member may actually frame what the problem is versus me in a in CFI could be very, very mm. different. And there's so much data in that straight away. So I think it's, it's a, again, it's shifting out of the normal ways of working. Mm. And that's often, it's often much harder. It's easy to do a one-off exercise yeah. and treat it as a project rather mm. than go, actually, how do we integrate this into the way of working? And then we get into more adaptive work, which is mm. much more about sharing power, sharing expertise, being able to value and leverage community expertise and community knowledge and community power. It's mm. much harder and it takes longer and yeah. it's much more dynamic and can be more volatile. So a lot of our work is with federal state government where you know, the conditions often aren't in place in those systems to enter yeah. into those kind of engagements and relationships with community. Yeah. Again, with the best will in the world, people want to do that. But then the system will suck them back into the way it's always done things. Mm. The exceptions to that are when people have really spent the time creating conditions and very intentional working in a way to ensure that community leadership is elevated, 
and that they are at the heart of not just framing the problem, but that they intrinsically understand where the strengths and the levers are in their own communities and that the time, the resources are put into making sure that people can participate in that. So, you know, you're not in a situation where the only people who are being paid are the service yeah. providers and everyone else mm. is expected to do it for mm. pizza. Say. So it is happening, but it's happening in kind of bright spots. It's not <laughs> happening in the mainstream. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I think we're similar here in New Zealand. The pockets of really excellent practice coming through that people are learning from. And I mean, when you were talking just now, Liz, about the reality of this kind of work and, you know, you're going, oh, it's volatile, it's really hard, it's messy, you know, it takes longer. I guess I'm I was sitting here going, gosh, if, I'm a, if I am a, a gatekeeper in an organization and I'm hearing that, I might be running for the hills. And so, so something I've been wondering about recently is when we're trying to encourage these, this sort of way of working, should we be telling the real story, which is what you've just shared there, or do we try and sort of paper over the cracks and, and go, no, 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 it's, it's going to be fine. How, how, do we, how do we get leaders on board when it is messy and it is challenging? I think the really simple case for getting people on board is that what we're doing isn't working. Yeah, it's as simple as that, that, you know, the problems are continuing to continue. We may get breakthrough throughs in small population level groups, but we are not across the board affecting mm. large scale population level change. Mm. We think the people who are marginalized and more marginalized, the gaps are getting bigger, you know, mm. between between people, certainly in social inequity in, in Australia. So, I mean, mm. So that's a very compelling case for change. It's like, so we can keep on doing what we've always done. Yeah. But if we're actually looking at, okay, how do we really bring about change that's systemic? And, you know, I think I mentioned to you, Paul, we've just come off, off the back of major flooding mm. in this part of Australia. And the reality that we are now living in a time of, you know, and I've heard it from colleagues in North America and Canada talking about the time we're in now is, the long emergency, mm. that things, you know, climate change, inequity, racial inequity, all of these are coming to the fore pandemic. The, the way that we're working is no, you know, that going back to normal mm. isn't going to be happening <laughs> mm. anytime soon. And I think, you know, I've just had a very real lived experience of that. Mm. So my adaptive practice, if I draw mm. on that, would kind of say that, you know, the work of leadership at times like this is how do you help people adapt to a new reality? Mm. And that in doing that, we need to be able to have relentless optimism and hope that actually <laughs> things can shift, mm. but be ruthlessly realistic at the same time about what it's going to take to make that change. Mm. And I think when we tend to stay in one or the other, when we're just going, oh, it's all going to be fine. It's going to be great. And like you say, yeah. paper over the cracks <laughs> and go, we only want to focus on the positive and the asset base. Mm. Then that's great. We need that. And we've got to do that with, with many different lenses on the reality of the conditions that we have and people's capability and bandwidth mm. to that. And I, I actually think that <laughs> that is becoming more and more acute now that you know, we need the hope, but we've got to be very realistic about it. So in me saying, yeah, it's really hard for systems and organizations, if they keep doing what they've always done, 
to work in a way that has a community at the heart, therein, mm. I guess, lies the opportunity to go, okay, mm. kind of, why are we here? What is our purpose? Mm. And if we're not actually making a dent on that purpose, then let's stop doing what we've done and do something different. Yeah. And I, I actually think that's where there, there are great conditions and emergencies like the ones we're in at the moment, create those conditions for us to do things differently. Mm. You know, we saw resources came flooding really quickly in pandemics mm. and changes we've been trying to get for decades. It was like overnight. Yep. Yeah. So I, I kind of feel as change makers, our work is now is we've got to build that muscle to sit with constant discomfort. Mm. and enable our systems to be uncomfortable enough that mm. we can go, okay, if community aren't involved in this, then they, at the end of the day, have to be the ones that own and create the solutions. And if they're mm. not engaged and at the heart of it, then we're always going to be doing to them. Mm. And it's never going to stick. Mm, Liz, when you explain it, <laughs> it just makes so much sense. And you know, people can't see it, but you, you sort of had your hands showing these these two polarities almost, or these two things that are true at the same time of, which I found really helpful just then of, we have to be really optimistic about the future and ruthlessly real about where we are right now and what needs to change. I find it, yeah, that's really helpful to hold both of those as true at the same time. When I think sometimes I and, and other people are, are looking for a single truth, but actually there's lots of things here that are true. You've kind of hit your nail on the head. I saw something the other day around leaders and working systems leadership means that you never actually arrive at a single truth. <laughs> yeah. And go, yeah, that's the way. And we're all, you know, we're all looking for the silver bullet. And mm. for a while, collective impact was it. And now systems change is it. And mm. for me, you know, systems practice and systems change is having and being able to surface and hold multiple truths mm. and multiple ways of doing things that may work depending on the context and the conditions. Mm. But, you know, I think it's when we get too wedded to this is the way or we're going to use this one approach and we mm. expect that that's going to fix it rather than having a very broad tool bag and ways of looking and seeing. And, you know, I kind of, I use the metaphor of putting on multiple pairs of glasses so that I can constantly be getting different versions of reality because I'm, I'm blinkered, you know, yeah. I've only mm. got my own yeah. glasses to see things through. And we're doing that at a time in the world where we're seeing the pull to the more dogmatic, polarized, mm. you know, good or bad, mm. right or wrong is, you know, is becoming a bit more stuck and rigid. So mm -hmm. I think those, you know, those people working who you've said who are sitting in systems making change, I think the more that they can be engaging outside and that we bring in other views so that we, we're constantly challenging those mm -hmm. edges of what we can helps us kind of wake up to new possibilities. Yeah, and you mentioned before one of the capabilities we need to grow in ourselves is being able to be comfortable with discomfort and just accepting that discomfort is part of how life is. What, what have you found is really helpful for people to build that within themselves? Yeah, look, it's, it's easier said than done, eh? Because we all love <laughs> yeah. our comfort zone. I think there's something about, and I don't know, I've, I've kind of drawn my Yorkshire Scottish roots for this, that, you know, I grew up in a culture where 
conflict and argument was part of the national psyche. You know, right. that you, you'd be in the pub with people and everyone's having a good argument about politics or religion or whatever it was. Well, and absolutely. it wasn't seen, I mean, whilst there were civil wars going on, that way of engaging with each other wasn't seen as problematic. So there, there is something about being able to, when we have different views, even in an interpersonal way in relationships, instead of seeing that as problematic, be start to being able to lean into that. Mm. and be curious about it you know in organizations we manage it we manage the conflict we manage Mm. difference and that's fine when we're doing technical work but you know we're in a very adaptive time where we've got to surface that and be able to work with different and opposing and often polarized views so I think you know being being able to sit with that and sit with someone disagreeing with us We've, we've lost that edge a wee bit through, you know, social media where we're often in our own little bubble and we mm. get our own views reflected back at us. So I think the more we can put ourselves in those situations, even for mm. me, sometimes it's sitting in a taxi with a taxi driver who <laughs> yeah. is spouting some fairly populist stuff that normally I would just tune out to mm. and go, oh, I don't want to listen to this, to engage and ask questions and go, why yeah. do you think that? Yeah. And, you know, I might do that one time out of 10 and the other nine, I'll just put my earphones in <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's too hard. Mm. So, I mean, that I think we, we all have those opportunities every day. That's an interpersonal mm. way. In our organizations where we're working on complexity again, that how do we embrace the no or, you know, and mm. I've done some work in, in deep democracy in the past, the work of that's come out of process work that came out of South Africa post-apartheid. Mm. People like Myrna Lewis and comes from Arnie Mandel's work on deep democracy, which is about really surfacing and working with the no, the resistance. And I think part of the work of complexity is expecting resistance and not mm. assuming we know why it's there, but mm. actually being actively curious about you know, resistance will come if we're trying to change systems. Mm. So how do we plan for that? Get comfortable with it, expect it, and build conditions and the container mm. so that we can actually contain that resistance and not be, you know, not see it as a threat to mm. what we're doing because we need it. You know, it's <laughs> really the gold in collaboration, mm. but we often are a wee bit scared of it. Liz, you're talking to somebody born and raised in Christchurch, New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, when you're talking about sitting in the pub and, and arguing about politics, that is not something that happened in my upbringing. You know, those topics would come up and everybody would, would quickly change it. Or, you know, an auntie or an uncle says something racist and everyone just yeah. sort of gosses over it. But I, I love how you're just saying, actually, the opportunity to practice those skills exists every day, mm. you know, even when, I mean, we are all working a little bit more from home now. So it is harder to have those interactions or that there are fewer of them, but they are still in our day to go, Ooh, mm. okay, here's a chance to practice being with somebody who has a different view to me and I'm going to practice being curious about it. It starts with us. And then how do we do that in our systems? And like you said before, Paul, have allies where you've built a muscle to hold tension. Mm. And, and, you know, a lot of that then takes us into fairly developmental work of knowing, well, what is my default when 
mm. you know, when there's difference, am I going to be shutting it down because I'm, I'm a peacemaker? Yeah. How do I play a different role, take up different roles? So I think, you know, there's lots of practice that we now have access to that we didn't before. We didn't have language, but we now have language around that. That means mm. we can play a range of different roles, be fluid in the roles we take up, partner with people to go, well, hey, you're really good at doing that, but I'm going to relieve you because, you know, you're getting stuck in that role of being the peacemaker or the agitator. Yeah. And I'm going to be the agitator today for a change. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned deep democracy just before. We, we had Max Rashbrook, who's an author on the show. He's written a book which looked at the potential for deep democracy here in New Zealand. And we don't have many people practicing that or at least going around saying hey i'm doing deep democracy right now can can you share about you know what does that even mean to you the word deep democracy and i know you've all you also talk about deep collaboration mm. I mean, what's the difference between democracy and deep democracy or collaboration and deep collaboration democracy is a kind of process or practice but i think in its most kind of truest form or crudest form. It's this idea that we have Western democratic systems, which has a, a view about majority wins, but then what happens to the minority voice? Mm. And I think at its heart, deep democracy seeks to be able to help systems adapt by being able to engage with the minority voice in a way that it doesn't go underground and stop that change happening, that we can, we get the wisdom from that, because there is always wisdom in the minority voice, even if it's wisdom that we don't agree with, and we don't want to hear, there is a value, or a loss that people who are in the minority are, are trying to get heard. Mm. And when that isn't heard, we see the, we see what happens with that, you know, and, you know, you're being in Christchurch, I don't need to tell you, because it's, you know, you've experienced it. We, we see how dangerous that is to democracy when we can't engage with minority view. Mm. So I think that principle, if you like, was what drew me to it. Mm. Because I, you know, it resonated strongly with me. You know, my own experience, if you like, just in the question you asked earlier, you know, I grew up in Scotland, but had been born in England and with English parents. And hmm. I lost that accent really quickly, even at a young age, because, you know, it was it was survival mechanism, really. Yeah, yeah. Have an English accent. So I think there's been something for me of, as always being in the role of the outsider and being slightly on the edge of and, and hmm. coming to Australia and hmm. having a Scottish accent. And there's, there's a power and privilege that I've learned that outsider role gives you if you can hmm. tap into it and own it. And not, mm. you know, often, often I'd be seeking to enter, to be part of the mainstream. And, and there's parts of that I can never be because I'm not, I've not had that experience. And so in the work in deep collaboration, I guess what that is that the we we named it that that work came out of work that I was involved in when I was with Social Leadership Australia, which was an organization where we were working on how do we shift how people think about and practice leadership in a mm. way that enables us to address, you know, the, the <laughs> complex issues we've got, which is about anyone can exercise leadership. Mm. It's a, an activity, it's not a position. And we've mm. got to stop going, 
let's let the leader do that because it's actually not leadership that they're doing. So that really led me into this work I'm doing now. And I've been on a kind of 15 year journey around what does that mean? <laughs> like, yeah. how do you do it? But how do you enable others to do it? And a lot of that then was really about, you know, at its core, we're looking at how do you how do you shift how the mainstream responds to and reacts to challenges? And how do you leverage and mobilize people on the margins as mm. well to see the power that they have? They often feel powerless, but are often sitting on massive amounts of different types of power mm. that can be leveraged. And deep collaboration really grew from doing work with a group of First Nations leaders while I was with social leadership and really from us getting lots of things wrong as a as a white female facilitator working mm. with a group of First Nations leaders you know the kind of the cultural intelligence and the cultural lens I brought mm. to it I kept coming up against all the time of course mm. and but we leaned into it we said we kept going okay we're probably a really good case in point <laughs> for what happens is happening all across the mm. country and in other colonized countries. And we saw that, those same patterns and dynamics and other work that we were doing where we would reach an edge where there was some level of conflict and we wouldn't be able to get past that, that we would go mm. back to our trenches, if you like. So First Nations leaders would go to theirs and go, well, this is what always happens when we work with white fellas. And we would kind of go yeah. away and go, oh, well, you know, we're just going to do more harm. We don't know enough. We're not going to get it right. We're going to get bashed, mm. whatever we do. So we we did those typical things, but we had a process in place that enabled us to reflect on it, to go, mm. okay, well, if this is what we are doing, let's talk about it. Mm. And I think the breakthrough we had was we shared some observations and some hypotheses about going, okay, this is this is the patterns we've seen. This is what mm. we've done. And I remember the day in the room, you know, all the indigenous leaders were going, yeah, those things happen all the time. But no one has ever spoken about it before. And there's something in this. <laughs> so we kind of lent into it a bit more. And we ended up going down the path. And we wrote a book with a core group of the First Nations leaders called The Lost Conversations where we very much used ourselves and where we'd messed up. Mm. And the very act of being able to, to process that together and understand why that happened and to see that sitting underneath it were very similar things around the stories we were holding about the power we had mm. as either Indigenous leaders or as white people. They were often getting in the way, but how did we shift? How can we look at power differently how do we actually stay with the conflict? And because we were leadership development practitioners, we then lent into it a bit more. And here <laughs> we are. Deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. And went yeah. deeper. And I mm. guess what we saw is that actually all the dynamics that played out in the work that we were doing together as either First Nations Australians or white or multicultural Australians, all those dynamics that play out, play out in every system. They were mm. just on steroids because it's so precarious and it can go from zero to a hundred really quickly when we're mm. working across race and power. And we're always going to have lack of awareness. There's always going to be mm. some awareness we don't have. And what do we yeah. do when, not if, 
but when yeah. and how are we contributing to status quo? And that's really now been the last six, seven years through the work mm. at CFI that we've developed this into something we're calling deep collaboration. Because while it happens in every collaboration, to actually contain it and hold it across race and power requires different conditions. Mm. So we've set up now, we've got a platform, collaboration, it's all open source resources that we provided. We're now doing a fundamental program and an intensive program with people working in it about how can they hold and facilitate conflict, working across culture. And really what we're doing is drawing on all those principles from deep democracy about leaning into working with the marginal voice, giving ourselves more options in the roles that we take up. So we don't mm. get stuck in being the, you know, the, the white polite or the white mm. guilty person or, mm. you know, going right, I've got to be really polite here. Yeah. And, you know, we end up, what we saw is we ended up not using the power and resources we have. Mm. And that was just more inflaming because First Nations leaders going, you've got all this social and mm. formal power at your disposal and you're sitting there as if you don't have any because the feeling of not having power is way more pervasive than the reality yeah. of what you actually have so it's now it's now a living thing it's now a practice mm. mark Jessica paulson who's been a colleague for a long time and worked with us on lost conversations is now leading that practice and we're now working in, with people on treaty in victoria around it but you know it's it's uh again it's a wee bit similar to where we started as it's happening in bright spots it's still not in the mainstream because but people are increasingly going you know this isn't this isn't about having good policy or good process this is actually about how do we build the conditions to change how we speak work and listen to mm. each other and do that in a way that we can really address some of this kind of long tail and legacy mm. of colonization that we are all impacted by every day. Liz, thank you for walking us through that. And I mean, I really heard in there that word deep is about continuing to just ask what's going on here. Okay, why is that happening? Uh, okay, what's causing that? And just continuing to go under and under and under because so often we get to that, as you say, that edge or that that point where we just go, oh, this feels difficult. <laughs> so, and we step away from it. And mm. then the other thing that really came up in what you were sharing there was the personal work of who am I when I show up with this group of people or who am I in my organization? What's, what are the biases? What are the power that I hold? What are the beliefs that I hold? And, and knowing where you just don't know things. Mm. And I also, I also, the third thing I, I'm, I'm really taking away from that was being prepared and understanding that it's actually a positive thing to reach that point of resistance. And so you're, preparing yourself for that moment because it is going to happen rather than viewing it as a failure on yourself when that moment happens mm. it's actually a moment to to lean into beautiful you, synthesis yes <laughs> awesome and i mean i think we've got so much to learn from each other across across the ditch here and you know you talk about 
bright sparks and, and little pockets of inspiration that, that are happening. And yeah, I think that's, that's the case in both countries. And, and actually, when you start to look at all of those bright spots together, suddenly you start to go, oh, wow, actually, there is really a movement of people who are working in this and, and being different in their work, which really inspires me. And, you know, I've say we, we always look across the ditch at what the work that's been done in this area, being really way ahead of what's happening in Australia. I think that the conditions here are very different, but that I think where we're seeing that there is a common, a common need is having those spaces to, to lean into and not get stuck in fairly entrenched power dynamics. Either way, mm. that, you know, the more that they can be fluid particularly at these times that we're in, for people to see what power they have even when they, they don't feel it is, is fairly universal at the moment. But yeah, certainly, I know we've got a long way to go here in Australia, but, but you know, it's the things are shifting really quickly, which is really good to see. And the language, I think reclaiming language is a big part of that, that the literacy now around the country that people are on, acknowledgement of that in really mainstream places, you know, it starts... It often starts with what we say every day, doesn't yeah. it? So, I mean, um, what's been so powerful to notice here in Aotearoa is the use of te reo Māori. Yeah, you know, I grew up not speaking a single word and I went, had a holiday with my parents recently and they were speaking Māori to me. And, you know, it's only small words, but one small example of where that has shifted very quickly in the last sort of three to five years after decades and decades mm. of, of of work to to kind of get to a point where it accelerates so who knows maybe maybe mm. that's maybe that's where we are in, in other ways of working as well mm. Mm. yeah absolutely oh liz I, I could keep asking you questions for ages is, is there anything else that you'd like to share for that's um coming into your mind after our conversation so far i, I think um, again i think the timing of this conversation has has been timely for me just Again, given what we what are, we're surrounded by currently here in Australia with uh, floods, COVID, etc., I, I do think maybe what's come to the fore for me in this conversation is about the urgency that probably, like many people listening to this, have taken part in these many conversations like this, and and then I know how easy it is to fall back into well, what I've, you know, my to-do list and what I've got to do, and it's very present for me at the moment. But how do we keep really that level of urgency about like if not now when you know that classic if not now when if if not me who that every day we've got those moments and I'm particularly thinking about how do I try and use this in a way that sharpens what I'm doing so I'm not accepting status quo and nudging nudging where I can and not just you know I know I will fall back into the day-to-day at some point, part of that will be really nice when it does. <laughs> There's something about the urgency that's come up. So thank you for, for just having the opportunity to reflect, actually, at a time when I probably needed to do that. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> nice to hear what, what the, my many questions have helped to, to happen in your mind, Liz. So thank you so much, Liz, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Paul. That was lovely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at 
www.businesslab.co.nz slash podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Nā mihi mō te whakarongo.